Good morning. Really is good to be here with you today. And I was thinking uh, as we were beginning uh, our time of worship, I moved out from Colorado to Southern Ohio in uh, November of 99 to do a, a one-year internship at Scioto Hills Camp. And, uh, and that uh, internship uh, uh, dovetailed in, it lasted a full year, and, and of course uh, most of that internship was, was geared toward working and gearing up towards summer camp. And uh, we, we were expecting a record number of campers that summer, and many of you know Gary and Nancy Storm, uh, longtime uh, missions partners here at, at Grace Chapel, friends of uh, uh, Dave and Sue Dernlin. And, uh, and so we're, we're working, we're gearing up for summer, and then, and then before campers come, the staff comes. And, and I was just thinking about this. One of the first summer staffers that I met was, uh, was a guy by the name of Josh Freeze. And uh, Josh is, uh, is the middle kid of Mike and Kathy, and, uh, and Josh is here with us this morning. Good to see you, man. Glad you made it. Um, Josh became a good friend, and uh, it's just good to have friends in your life. And uh, my wife and I, it's been a couple of months since we've been in this space. Can you hear me okay now? All right. It's been a couple of months since we've been here. The last time we were here, uh, we, were, uh, we were saying goodbye to Naomi's mom. And I uh, want to just say a word of thank you to many of you who have just poured out your love and concern uh, on our family, and we're grateful for, for God's redemptive community who stands with us in difficulty, and uh, we're grateful for that. And so just wanted to offer a word of thanks. This morning we're going to be in James chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and put your finger in James 1, and as you're turning there, I thought I'd spend just a few minutes uh, giving you a, a short update on what we're doing with Capital Ministries, and it's been, uh, been an interesting uh, year for us. Our uh, ministry trajectory and plans have been to raise support to launch a ministry in Denver, Colorado, and in the meantime, we're working at the State House in Columbus, and uh, uh, God has really blessed our ministry here in Ohio this year, and our Bible study numbers with legislators have tripled since January, and so when we began meeting again with, with uh, lawmakers in January, um, things just began to take off. And, uh, and in a moment, I'll, I'll tell one of the reasons why. But uh, we're running out of room in our conference room. Uh, we, were, we were running about uh, eight or so in regular attendance with, with, uh, with about 15 kind of on our roll. But since January, we've got about 35 on our roll. And we've got about 18 to 20 that are meeting with us every Wednesday for, for a 60-minute Bible study. God is opened up opportunities for us to open the Ohio House of Representatives in session and prayer and also the Ohio Senate. Uh, it's happened almost a dozen times this spring, and in large part because of the relationships that we've been able to build and cultivate within the clerk's office, in the Senate, and the House. And I don't know if you know this, but there are three key players 
in the Ohio uh, Senate clerk's office that are from West Liberty or the West Liberty area. In fact, the, the Senate clerk himself is a resident of West Liberty. Uh, one of the ladies who works in the office, her brother works for my brother-in-law. Uh, another gal, her husband was uh, my father-in-law's, uh, one of his basketball officials. And so as we began to walk the halls there, uh, initially, uh, my ministry partner Brian and I were often kind of looked at like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but it's great to have friends on the inside uh, who give our ministry some credibility. And, uh, and so one of the hard things for the clerk's office, both in the House and the Senate, is to, is to find people who will open the session in prayer. And oftentimes they'll get a, a rabbi or a, an imam or a Hare Krishna or whoever comes in and, and, uh, and they'll turn that moment of prayer into a time of uh, political posturing and it's, uh, it's, it, it's kind of a disgusting time. From a parliamentary point of view, as soon as that person has the floor in either the House or the Senate, it's theirs for as long as they want it. And so who's ever praying, they can just hold the microphone for however long they want. And I remember praying the first time in the Senate, and the Senate president asked me, he says, uh, Pastor Brian, uh, how long is your prayer going to be? I said, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. He goes, oh, okay. He says, because the lady that we had last year, uh, it took her about 30 minutes to get through her prayer. And uh, I said, no, no, we're not going to go that long, don't worry. But what we try to do in those times of prayer is, is identify a characteristic of God himself, a portion of scripture, and then pray the gospel over the, the members that are there. And uh, we don't turn the prayers into uh, a, a political platform for us, but we ask God to grant them uh, wisdom and clarity for their work. And uh, that's given us a lot of favor. And so as we walk the halls, and we stop in at different offices. We've cultivated relationships with many members and staff. And I love this picture here on the left. Uh, this is a young woman in a, uh, she's in a, in a Democrat's office. Many in our conservative circles say, boy, is, is your Bible study, is it bipartisan? Do you have Republicans and Democrats come? Well, yeah, we do. And, uh, and, and, and you know, we've, we've uh, begun to build relationships with, with many in all the offices there. But this young lady, uh, she came running out of her office one Wednesday morning and chased me down the hallway and said, said, Pastor Brian, I missed you when you came in. She said, would you pray for me? I said, sure. She said, my grandmother passed away and, and tomorrow is her funeral. And Would you just pray for me and our family? And I said, you bet. And I said, would you like to pray here? She says, oh, please. And then she says, would, would you hold my hand? I said, you bet. And we, there in the hallways of the State House, took our request before the throne of grace, and we asked the God of, well, the Ancient of Days to intercede on her behalf. And, uh, and I'm confident that the God of the universe heard our prayers and was her peace and comfort. It's a good time. Uh, some of the friendships that we've been able to connect with. Uh, the big bald guy on the, on the far left is Brian Hansen. He's my ministry partner. Uh, the guy going from left to right. The next guy over, his name is Tim Ginter. Uh, Representative Ginter is actually a Nazarene pastor in uh, northern Ohio. 
and is one of our Bible study sponsors. He's uh, one of the guys who sends out a weekly invitation to his colleagues to invite them to come to our Bible study. He's also the speaker pro temp, which makes him the second most powerful um, person in the Ohio State House. Uh, next gentleman to uh, going from left to right, his name is Representative Reggie Stoltzfus, and uh, Representative Stoltzfus and I have uh, begun just a really good relationship, and he and I uh, have plans to hike Half Dome in California in September, Lord willing, and uh, he's been a good friend of our ministry, and uh, there's more I could share about that. Uh, in our very last Bible study before session stopped for the summer, we, uh, we invited a, uh, an Indian pastor to come. Uh, I can't tell you his name because of some sensitivities. Uh, he's our capital ministries representative in India. Uh, he's also a uh, supported missionary, Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, and others support him. Uh, he and his wife, Glor- <coughs> he and his wife have uh, uh, three, excuse me, four adult children, three of whom are at Cedarville University, and uh, and they're doing amazing work in India. He escaped India uh, earlier this uh, spring uh, after nine murderous attempts on his life. Uh, life as a Christian in India is dicey at best and the political climate is making it worse. And so he is now stateside, and we're actually trying to uh, do some back-channel diplomacy, uh, working with some of our friends in the former president's administration to see if we can't get uh, this pastor to be our capital ministry's representative in the United Nations. And there's some neat things that are happening behind the scenes. We'd ask your prayer for that. Um, But in this meeting, this Indian pastor challenged the lawmakers walk through Psalm 119 to be bold and courageous. Not just in their living, but in their legislating. And there were a couple of things on the agenda for that day's session. Uh, A couple of bills that would be, shall we say, contrary to what God wants for people and for life. And one of the house leaders, uh, while we're walking through the Bible study, picks up his phone and begins to do business under the table. Afterwards, we found out that as a result of walking through Psalm 119 and this Indian pastor's challenge to our state's lawmakers, two bills were killed on the spot. Amen. That our lawmakers are listening to the preaching and teaching of God's word, and they're viewing their work through the lens of the Bible. Continue to pray for them as they do their work, and pray for us as we point them towards the Savior. We've been walking through James with our lawmakers this year, and, uh, and so I thought it would be fitting for us to go through James together this morning. Let's pause and pray for God's help. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have not left us to our own devices to figure out life on our own, to make the rules up as we go, to treat people as we wish, Lord, you have set forward a clear roadmap for how Christians ought to live. Lord, as we walk through this roadmap, this just one chapter in James, Lord, I pray that that you would help us by way of your Spirit to give a, a long, hard look at our hearts. And if there is any way that is out of step with the character of Jesus, 
pray that your spirit would convict us and lead us to righteousness, repentance, and you would give aid to us as we cultivate patterns of holiness in our life. Lord, apart from you, we can't do that. We need your help for that, and so we pray for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. James chapter 1 is filled with all sorts of goodies. And uh, earlier on in the week, my intent was just to focus in on the second half of James chapter 1 and with, with a high emphasis on obedience, and that was going to be our theme. And, and towards the end of the week, I called an audible, and we're going to do a little bit of water skiing here this morning. And we're going to kind of skim across the surface of James chapter 1, and this morning will be kind of a, an overview of sorts. There's just too many goodies here in this chapter, and we're going to try to highlight as many good things as we can. If we had several weeks together, we would do a, a deep dive uh, on some of these topics, but I, f- I feel like with a diverse crowd like this, many of us are walking through different situations and circumstances, water skiing over the top of many of the things that James addresses might be an appropriate thing for us to do. And so at the end of the morning, there might be something for you. Well, if you're a child, if you're a kid, if you're a student, if you're recently retired, if you're going through a difficulty, James, I think, in, in chapter 1, addresses many of the things that we might be finding ourselves walking through. And so I think it would be appropriate to water ski a little bit this morning. Before we dive in, though, there's a few noteworthy things that, that should be known about this letter, this, this uh, uh, epistle that James writes. First is, who is James? Is it James the apostle? James the... The disciple, one of the twelve? No, James, who wrote this epistle, is Jesus' half-brother. In fact, James was an unbeliever during Jesus' public ministry, according to John chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. James, however, had an encounter with the risen Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And James was present at Pentecost in Acts chapter 1 and 2, where there was a great turning of many toward the gospel of Jesus. The Apostle Paul recognized James as the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And James actually had the final word at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Now this council of Jerusalem took place in AD 49, 50-ish. was an important council. There was a theological problem that the early church had to resolve. And that problem was, could Gentiles really be saved? The answer, of course, was yes. And James had the final word there. James was an influential person in the life of the early church. Since there's no mention of the Council of Jerusalem, as described in Acts 15, we can, with fair, fair, a fair amount of certainty, say that Acts can be accurately dated somewhere between A.D. 44 and 48, which makes James the earliest book in the New Testament. Uh, Newsflash to some of you, uh, the New Testament is not written chronologically. It's not. Uh, James, from a chronological point of view, would be the earliest book of the New Testament. 
John Walvoord, in his commentary, says this about James. He says, it's well known that Martin Luther had problems with this book. Martin Luther did have problems. Martin Luther, uh, one of the fathers of the Reformation, had a, had a big problem with James because of James' is high emphasis on conduct in works. Of course, Martin Luther wanted nothing to do with works and legalism. He was, he was uh, caught up by grace, and he was knowing grace for the first time after living his whole life within a legalistic framework of Catholicism. Luther had a difficulty um, reconciling some of the things that James said with what Paul says and writes in Romans and in Galatians. Walvoord continues, he says, says, Luther called it a right strawy epistle, but it's only strawy to the degree that it's sticky. There are enough needles in this haystack to prick the conscience of every dull, defeated, degenerated Christian in the world. Here is a right stirring epistle designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, to rebuke and revive, to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of a faith that works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. This book of James is as much a lecture as, a, as it is a letter, and though it opens with a customary salutation of one of the epistles that we would encounter in other places in the New Testament, it lacks personal references common in a letter. Paul would often greet so-and-so or so-and-so. Hey, give my regards to so-and-so. Here's some final instructions for this person or that person. Not so in this letter. This epistle was obviously prepared for public reading as a sermon to the congregations that it addressed. The tone is clearly authoritative. James includes 54 imperative commands in his 108 verses. That's an average of one call for action in every other verse. So hopefully you brought your steel-toed boots today because we're going to be stepping on some toes. James's style is both energetic and vivid, conveying profound concepts with crisp, well-chosen words. The sentences here are short, simple, and direct. He uses many metaphors and similes with a touch of poetic imagination. In fact, the book of James probably has more figures of speech, analogies, and imagery from nature than all of the Apostle Paul's letters put together. All of its exhortations and rhetorical questions and illustrations from everyday life give this little letter spice, and it's good for us to walk through it. James chapter 1 places high emphasis on obedience. Chuck Swindoll, in his book Strengthening Your Grip, tells of a story where he and his wife and some friends had dinner with a former astronaut. And he writes this. He says, My wife and I had the pleasure of spending an evening with former astronaut General Charles M. Duke. All of us in the room sat wrapped in fascination as the man told of the Apollo 16 mission to the moon, including some interesting tidbits related to driving the rover lunar vehicle and his actual walking on the surface 
of the moon. We were all full of questions, which General Duke patiently and carefully answered one after the next. I finally asked him, I said, once you were there, weren't you free to make your own decisions and carry out some of your own experiments? You know, kind of sort of do what you pleased. Maybe stay a little bit longer if you liked. He smiled back at me and said, sure, Chuck, if we didn't want to return to Earth. He then described the intricate plan, the exact and precise instructions, the essential discipline, the instant obedience that was needed right down to the split second. By the way, he said that, that they had landed on the moon somewhat heavy, meaning uh, he was referring to their fuel supply. They had plenty left. Guess how much? One minute. They landed with 60 seconds of fuel remaining in their tanks. Talk about being exact. I got the distinct impression that a rebel doesn't fit inside of an astronaut suit. Whoever represents the United States in, in the space program must have an unconditional respect for authority. I wonder how much more for us who claim the name of Jesus Christ ought to have high regard for the commands of Scripture. It's been said that the last thing for a Christian or the last body part on a Christian to be converted is their right foot. How fast did you drive to church today? Knowing God's authority that He has placed in our life and submitting to that authority. Obedience is an important part of our progressive sanctification, our becoming more and more like Jesus. And as you look over your shoulder... Today, are you more like Jesus than you were yesterday? Than you were the day before and the day before that? Sometimes it's tough to tell. We planted a tree in the back of, backyard some years ago, actually when my oldest daughter was five, and for years we thought, man, is this tree ever going to grow? We go out there now and the tree is 13 feet tall and growing not only in height but in girth. Sometimes there's that, that curse of close proximity where that person in the mirror doesn't seem to be getting their act together. Am I really growing? Am I really getting my act together? I'm 46 years old at the end of this summer. And oftentimes I wonder, Brian, are you ever going to get your act together? Can you relate? The self-righteous in the room don't. Of course I've got my act together. Of course Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm amazing. I make all the right calls in life. Let's turn our eyes to the scriptures. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I want to underline that word. It comes up several times. 
verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His His creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness, Rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Early on in the chapter, in verses 2 to 4, James makes several points, none larger than this, that God uses trials to grow us. And if I were to ask you to raise your hand, have any of you experienced a trial in life every hand would go up. This place would look like a charismatic church. Sorry, couldn't help myself. God uses trials to grow us. It's it's the means by which we progress in our sanctification. 
As a parent, I pray for my kids that God will grow them. And then I read through James, and I see that the incubation chamber for their growth is difficulty. Lord, grow my kids, but please don't hurt them. Trials produce something in our lives, though. They produce steadfastness. Did you catch steadfastness? It showed up in this chapter several times. There is purpose to difficulty. There is perfect uh, purpose to trials. And that's steadfastness. This Greek word has the, has the idea of a, of a military person standing firm on the day of battle. There's bullets whizzing past this Navy SEAL. And he's standing firm. He's not given ground. And while there's great difficulty and uncertainty all around this person, this person demonstrates great steadfastness. These trials and difficulties that, that God sovereignly ordains that we walk in, whether it's being fired from your job, spouse leaving you, a rebellious child, financial difficulties, relational problems, an awful, pesky neighbor who just gets under your skin. These trials are meant to grow us. There is blessing to the one who remains steadfast in the midst of this trial. But look at verse 5. We like to pull verse 5 out of this context that's sandwiched in between trials and we're going to see temptations. Verse 5 James says, hey, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Does anybody lack wisdom? I do. And I pray for it all the time. Lord, I'm in the midst of this and I don't know what to do. I don't have the right words. I'm, I'm concerned that I don't have the right character for this. I don't have the right skill to face this kind of trial. God, I need your wisdom. This promise tucked right in between temptation and trial is no accident because that's where we spend most of our life, right? We spend most of our life going from one difficulty to the next. Oh, and to make things worse, we have to deal with temptation, that difficulty is not on the outside but on the inside. We'll get there in a moment. This request for wisdom should be viewed through the lens of of the trials that James just mentioned and the temptation that he's about to address. You see, trials are not to be seen as tribulations, but rather testings. A test is given to see if a student can pass, not pass out. James gave, gave sound advice on how to score high on every test. One who brings the right attitude to the trial who understands the advantage of the trial, who knows exactly where to obtain assistance in the trial, will certainly end up on God's honor roll. Amen? These tests, with God's help, and the Spirit of God, are meant for us to pass, not pass out. Friends, don't pass out. Don't give up. Pray that steadfastness will have its full and complete work in your life. Count it joy 
when you face trials of many kinds. Notice how it doesn't say, give thanks for the trial. Count it joy in the trial. It's different. The kind of joy that God allows us to have transcends the trial that we're experiencing. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be happy about the trial. But we know that there's purpose there. There's steadfastness on the back end so that we might be perfect and complete. This idea of being complete and whole as a person. Well, that person's a well-rounded person. You ever said that about someone? Just a well-rounded person. Guys, just clear-minded. Maybe another way of saying this biblically is they're steadfast. No matter what they're facing, they're steady. Friends, we can be steadfast in the trial when we ask for God's wisdom to sustain it, sustain us, and the Spirit of God gives us aid. Verses 12 to 15, James addresses the temptations that we face. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, there's that word again, under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Reminded of a story a pastor friend told uh, one time when he was a kid, he got into some big trouble. He was fighting with his sister and ended up pulling out a whole chunk of her hair. Mom and dad weren't home at the time when it happened, and so he had time to rehearse what he was going to say to his mom when she came home to find out that her daughter was missing a whole chunk of hair out of her head. And he had this thought. I know, I know what I'll say. Mom comes home. Sweetheart, what did you do? He says, I know, Mom, it was, it was terrible. The devil made me do it. And without skipping a beat, that mom says, well, sweetheart, we're going to have to spank that devil right out of you. When we succumb to temptation, our human, depraved, natural response is to blame somebody else for giving in to the temptation. It was so-and-so's fault. The devil made me do it. Or in a more blasphemous way, James says, some of you might blame God for your temptation. James says, let no one say, that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. God does not tempt us. Rather, we are the true source of temptation and sin. Friends, I think we give Satan way too much credit. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipresent. The Bible tells us where Satan is. You know where he is right now, right? The Bible says... He's in heaven accusing the brethren day and night. Hey, God, did you see Brian? He blew it again. Hey, God, did you see Brian? Hey, God, did you see him? He did it again. He did it again. Praise be to Jesus, who's our great intercessor, 
And God says, Brian's mine. And Jesus and his shed blood covered it all. He's with me. But Satan is in a defined place. And oftentimes we say, oh, you know, Satan, those thoughts that he gives us. Friends, James is pretty clear where those temptations come from, where those thoughts come from. They come from our own desires. And when we allow our desires to go unchecked, it gives birth to sin. And we've got to bring our desires under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we've got to submit those things. And when we sense our desires going sideways, we pray for wisdom. God, this is happening. Give me aid by way of your spirit and help me overcome this temptation. I want to be steadfast in this test. God uses trials to grow us. Temptations are a reality. But God doesn't tempt us. Those desires in us lead us to sin. And sin leads to death. There's a hinge section here in verses 16 to 18. Um, and it really reveals James's presupposition as he's writing this whole letter. He says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 18 says that we are a kind of first fruits. This is, of course, referring to the new birth or regeneration that we experience when we em embrace Jesus by faith. The Bible tells us that, that before we come to Christ, we are dead in our sin and trespasses. And yet when we express saving faith in Jesus, something awesome happens. The Bible says that we are, we are made alive in Him. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sin. We are no longer enemies of God. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. That regeneration, that new birth. This idea of first fruit is not in relation to creation in the initial first fruits of the cosmos. Rather, James is specifically speaking to our salvation that has made us a new creation at the moment that we've embraced the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So we have been brought forth. We have been carried along, transferred again. And this word... Um, this, the agent of our being brought forth is the word of truth. James says we've been brought forth by the word of truth. Well, what is this word of truth? Remember, this is the first book of the New Testament. What is this truth? It's the Bible. It's the Old Testament. It's the Scriptures. This law of liberty that James makes reference to earlier in the chapter. We have been brought forth by the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God's Word plays an important role in understanding that we've been brought forth to be this kind of first fruit. 
The presupposition that James is making here is that this epistle is written to believers, those who have already embraced Jesus by faith. And everything that comes out of this needs to be filtered through that lens. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're interested in living out these precepts found in James, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're not going to be able to do this on your own. It will be an exercise in futility. For these things are to be the outworking of the Christian life. We have been brought forth by the word of truth because of his will. The fact that God gives good gifts speaks to the goodness of God. It's it's who God is. One of God's attributes is his goodness. God's will is therefore subject to his character. God is good, and that's why we can trust him. Why do you trust God? You're going about your life, business this week, and somebody says, hey, why do you trust God? How do you answer that question? Some might say, well, I I trust God because as he's revealed to us in Scripture... And his word is true. God is truth. I I believe him. You'd be right in saying that. Some of you might say, well, God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's inerrant. He's infallible. Those things are all true. Those are all characteristics or attributes of God. But the thing that drives me to want to obey is that all the things that God calls me to do flow out of his heart and his goodness. God wants good for me. God doesn't ask me to do something that's hard just because it's hard. God doesn't lead me through a trial just because it's difficult. God wants me to walk through these trials because he's good and he wants good for me and there's good on the back end and I can trust him because God is good. His goodness is who he is. You see, we are guilty so often of of creating caricatures of God. You know what a caricature is, right? You go to a fair, you go... Uh, someplace and you have the artist out there and the artist is drawing a little sketch and a caricature uh, basically identifies one characteristic of the person, blows it out of proportion and draws a picture of that person and you're like, oh, well, I guess it kind of looks like me. If I were to show it to other people, it would be like, oh yeah, that's, that's you. Kind of. They've taken your nose and... Blowing it up, right? We're guilty of creating a caricature of God all the time by highlighting one of his attributes over and above all of his attributes. And some of us, maybe I just put myself in this camp here, grew up in conservative evangelical Baptist circles where we represent a God who is wrathful and vengeful and you better not step out of line or you're in danger of that lightning bolt who's going to come out 
You know what? That difficulty you're facing right now, it's because you didn't go to church on Sunday. That difficulty that you're, difficulty that you're walking through right now, it's because you didn't do your quiet time. That difficulty that you're experiencing right now, it's because you looked at something inappropriate online. You screwed up in your performance. That's why life is going sideways. And the kind of God that we've communicated to people then is not the God of the Bible. You see, the trial that I'm going through isn't because I have not performed well. It's because God thinks there's something for me to learn in it, and it's good for me. And God is good. I can trust God in the trial. I can obey when I don't want to because the things that God is asking me to do are good. Maybe another way of saying this is uh, what John Piper says in Desiring God, that, that God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in Him. And when I am most satisfied, He is most glorified. 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. My obedience isn't born out of an attitude of duty or have to or pull myself up by my bootstraps because I should. It's born out of a spirit of thankfulness and worship. That's why Paul says we are living sacrifices. Friends, obedience out of duty or legalism is akin to the Old Testament Israelite sacrifices that God did not enjoy. And they brought their bulls and they brought their lambs and they brought their grain and they did all of that stuff out of duty because they had to, but it was empty. We obey because God is good. And we obey because it's a form of worship. And when God is glorified, I am satisfied. James is highly influenced by two sources in writing this, this epistle. One is the book of Proverbs, and the other is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so when you, in your quiet time, maybe Lord willing this week, if you're not doing anything regular in your quiet time, Give yourself over to the study of James this week and just read it afresh. And you'll see, wow, I'm seeing a lot of the Sermon on the Mount come out in James. This feels like I'm reading through the book of Proverbs. It's because those are two main sources that James draws from. And here's his first proverb. These short, pithy, easy, repeatable statements. And he's addressing anger that none of us deal with, ever. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, in verse 19. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Quick observation. Um, God's given us two ears and one mouth. How many parents have said that to your kids? God's given you two ears one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. Boy, oh boy, do our mouths get us into trouble, don't they? Right, kids? 
quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger fails to yield the righteous life that God desires for us. And the, the goal to which this epistle is committed is our conduct. Anger here is to be thought of as this deep internal feelings of hostility towards another. You know those feelings when somebody cuts you off on 68? What's this guy passing me going 90 miles an hour? Or this clown who's going 58? Come on, let's go! Or your kids or grandkids at the table who spill something for the hundredth time. My, it'll go down in our family's history and lore. Uh, my dad worked for FedEx for years, and so we, he wouldn't get home uh, from work till late. So we had family dinner at 8 o'clock every night. We were all starving. It's four of us boys. And somebody was bound to spill something at the dinner table. And we'll never forget one night, my dad has been working all day. We're finally sit down to eat, and one of us spills and slams his fist on the table. And he says, every meal, every stinking meal. Of course, all four of us, deeply respectful young men in training, we just let that one go, right? Uh, to this day, it's a race to see who's going to be the first one to, every meal, every stinking meal, remind dad of that. Told my kids that story when they were younger. We did a FaceTime with my parents, and, and one of my kids, I forget which one said it, says, hey, Grandpa. Every meal's a stinking meal. It's like, no, 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 you missed it. You missed it. Just, just, you, you missed the force of it all. We'll work on that. James presents a pathway for us in our obedience and in our conduct. He says in verse 21 that we're supposed to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. The Greek word for filthiness is riparia, which which means moral filth. In the Old Testament, this word is translated excrement or dung. So James is essentially urging Christians to put away any moral crap that they're tolerating in their own lives. How's that for being explicit? The Greek word for rampant means an abundance of or a surplus of wickedness. This Greek word means evil, depravity, malice, or a general sense of badness. James is saying that characteristically there should be not an abundance of badness in the life of the believer. Rather, we should delight in our obedience. We are to receive this implanted word with meekness. Later on in verse 21, the, the word of God is to be ingrown or inborn, rooted in the fertile soil of our soul. It's the word of God that can save and transform sinners. And it's the word of God that has to be received with a humble heart and dwelled upon by the believer. Yeah, yeah, I've heard James 1 over and over again. Don't you know, I've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years. As a pastor at Southgate Baptist Church, can I tell you how many times I heard, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a charter member. 
Southgate. What does that mean? I've been here from the beginning. Oh, gold star for you. How are you obeying today? What are you doing with Jesus today? Are you delighting in the gospel anew like you did 50 years ago? Are you receiving the implanted word of God with meekness and humility? One pastor asked the question, what's the best way not to be hungry at Thanksgiving dinner? What's the best way not to be hungry at Thanksgiving? The answer is, of course, to be filled up with other things. Similarly, when we sit down to feast on the word of God, we find that our hearts really don't want to eat. Our hearts are filled with other things. Our hearts are packed with TV programs or what's coming out on Disney Plus or Netflix. The internet, money, the stock market, our jobs, family anxieties, the riches of this world. Paul in Colossians says, stop thinking about the things of this world. Fix your eyes on things that are above. Essentially, our hearts are so packed with everything except for the longing of God. We struggle in our obedience because there's no room in our hearts for the implanted Word of God. Have you made room? Stop eating bread before dinner. Stop crowding out the implanted Word of God. Hearing and doing, friends, James in his pastoral exhortation says, Don't deceive yourselves. The worst kind of deception is self-deception. Stop kidding yourself. Maybe you've heard that. Stop lying to yourself. Look to the gospel, friends. Jesus is the embodiment of truth, and it helps ward off any sort of self-deception. Finally, James says the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. In verses 26 and 27, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, look, You claim Jesus, that's awesome. He's going to build on this in chapter 2. But the proof is in the pudding. What does it mean to do the word and not be a hearer only? Three areas of obedience are singled out by James. Personal behavior, social concern, and inner values. James says, be wary of the sins of the tongue, care for widows and orphans, and don't be conformed to this world. Three areas of life. A measuring stick, so to speak. Obedience, friends, is the very best way to show that you believe. Remember that old song? O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Friends, is your life marked with the kind of obedience that James is talking about here? I pray that your heart today 
has received the implanted word of truth and that the proof will be found in the pudding. The interactions that you have with people this week will be marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's my prayer for us as we leave here today. Father, you've heard what has been said and you've perceived the thoughts that we've had. Lord, I pray that each of us has received your word willingly and that your spirit would give us aid into cultivating patterns of holiness as we leave this place. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We declare our dependence on you and ask for help in the name of Jesus. Amen.